bunch of snakes. I mean, why are you guys even here today? You're like, you're like the spawn of Satan sitting out here. I mean, what are you even doing here? All right, that's my impression of John the Baptist's introduction, all right? So everyone can <laughs> settle down. Got everyone scared here a little bit. Not exactly the introduction that you learn in homiletics class for making people feel safe and comfortable in the service. John the Baptist, as he opens his ministry here, begins by addressing these brood of vipers, referring to them as really the spawn of Satan, if you will, going hard after them. John's whole ministry is really a call to repentance, a call for the people to repent. As he calls them to look away from themselves, look away from what they are treasuring, what they are finding satisfaction in, and to look to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's his call, and that'll be the call this morning. As we approach this text, we're going to be looking at three different things. We'll spend most of our time looking at repentance. There is a certain seriousness and sobriety to this text that I hope you'll receive the text with how it is stated. Whenever you preach, you want to um, obviously understand the genre of the text and understand the sense of what's going on. I think it's also important that you understand the tone or the mood that is being set. And this text is confrontational and it's to be received with a sober mind, seriously. And so I'll I'll pray, I pray for myself, the text did it to me this week, that it would confront you. I think the hard thing in being confronted, especially with a call um, to repentance, is, is twofold. First, I think whenever we're confronted, especially with a call to sin and repentance, it's much easier to apply it to the person beside you than it is to apply it to yourself. I mean, I have to battle that own in my own study where you, oh man, this person needs to hear this, this person needs to hear that. Let it speak and confront your own sin in your own life before you start applying it to others. I think the second battle is it's just hard to view ourselves honestly. We sometimes get clothed in, in materialism and the, the things of this age creep in and blind our minds that we don't really take a clear look at where our treasure in our heart is. So my prayer all week for you, what the Lord has done for me, is by the Spirit to allow this text to confront you with the tone that it's set forward in. I'm not going to scream at you and call you snakes and vipers. I know I did that once. It was kind of fun for a moment. But we'll take that back. We won't do that. But let the text, let the text confront you as it goes forward in this call to repentance. So three things we're going to look at. First is the historical setting here for the ministry of John the Baptist. Secondly, we'll look at John the Baptist, the man. And then thirdly, we'll look at this message of repentance. And we'll get to the third point quickly, and we'll hang out there for a few moments together. The historical setting which Adam so eloquently stumbled through those names for us there a few moments ago, sets for us the context for John the Baptist's ministry. So you remember John chapter 1, or I'm sorry, Luke chapter 1, John is born. 
Luke chapter 2, you have the birth of Jesus. And then from Luke chapter 2 to Luke chapter 3, a lot of time passes. You have the birth, the announcement of Jesus. He's brought to the temple. Last week, we saw that little episode uh, in Jesus' life at 12 years old. And now it moves all the way out to just shortly before the ministry of Jesus, when the public ministry of John starts. These names are are given at kind of places for us a historical setting. Who was in charge? Who were the high priests? How does everything overlap? I think Luke gives us this historical setting for a couple different reasons. First, if you remember back in Luke chapter 1, the whole purpose for Luke in writing this book in Luke chapter 1 verses 3 and 4, he says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He's presenting to you that this isn't just stories about John and Jesus. This is two actual men entering into actual time in place in history. There's a historical setting to this. And so he, he gives us putting together all the pieces, the historical setting. It also gives us the date that this was written probably around 28, 29 years after Jesus was born, which would make sense shortly before Jesus is ready to come onto the scene once again with his public ministry. And we get that, that Caesar Augustus, who was, um, when John and Jesus were born, he was ruling. He died about 13, 14 years after, and uh, Tiberius Caesar then moves in. And so now we see in the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. So you do the math, you're coming up around 28, 29 years after the birth of Jesus. So it places us in that timeline now where we know we're getting ready to launch into... Were you checking my math, Jim? I saw Jim's eyes moving. He was checking my math there. I'm just kidding. Uh, We're moving into the ministry here uh, 28, 29 years after the birth of Jesus. And then finally, it paints the context for us of when you see these names listed, if you go back and check out history, it's really, frankly, quite sad. I mean, it is men ruling in an age marked by pride, marked by incredible self-indulgence, marked by all kinds of violence and oppression of the poor. So it's really a dark time in history. So this is our background, this is our setting, this is the dark time in history when the Word of God comes forth through John. I think a simple application is easy, that Jesus, God, is able to speak into our lives and do great things even in the darkest times of our lives. Even when nothing seems to be lining up right for while we think life should go, God, at any point, immediately over time, can intercede in your life. And here he does, after 400 years of silence and now an announcement of John and Jesus coming, and yet just wickedness, self-indulgence, violence reigns, and it's in this historical context now that John the Baptist enters into the scene. So that's point one. Point two is, is John himself. John is a unique character. If you remember, maybe a month ago, we looked at John and his birth, and he's a unique character in that he is really the last of the Old Testament prophets. 
Jesus calls him the greatest of the prophets. And so here he is, the last of the Old Testament prophets, technically ministering before the inauguration of the new covenant. And yet Luke paints him kind of in this epic of fulfillment, of fulfillment more than in this Old Testament light. So really you have Old Testament prophet, forerunner of Christ. He is both a prophet, yet he is the fulfillment of that prophecy in Malachi. And so you have promises made meeting promises kept. As the epic of fulfillment comes, John is that final word, and yet at the same time, a fulfillment. So he is a unique character in history. We were introduced to uh, John back in chapter 1. If you remember all the way back at the beginning of uh, Luke, as Gabriel visits Zechariah and Elizabeth and tells them that the son will be filled with the Spirit, that prenatal filling of the Spirit. And then John is born, and in every way he is a forerunner to Jesus. In every way he foreshadows the ministry of Jesus. You remember even in his miraculous birth, as the Lord would intercede in an older, barren Elizabeth to see John born, foreshadows the divinely miraculous birth of Jesus. We looked at the celebration when John the Baptist is told is born and, and friends and neighbors throughout the village are celebrating and they're talking about it. Again, foreshadowing that cosmic joy when the angels ring forth at the birth of Jesus Christ. And then we see John in his naming ceremony and his circumcision being set apart for this ministry of preparing the way for the Messiah to come. He has the, takes that Nazarite vow where he, he stays away from wine or any strong drink and, and symbolizing him wholly set apart, wholly consecrated to this ministry that he has been called to. And then in the end of Luke chapter 1 and verse 80, it tells us that he went out into the wilderness and he grew strong in spirit. He grew up as a man there in the wilderness. Most commentators probably agree that his parents, older when they had him, probably died when he was in his late tweens, early teens type of years. So as a young team, isolated in the wilderness, growing with this internal work of the Spirit, this external regiment set upon him through this Nazarite vow, the Lord uniquely preparing him for ministry. And then if you look over at Mark, you get more of a visual image of John the Baptist. We looked at some of these things a couple weeks ago, but Mark chapter 1 and verse 6 says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And so here you have this visual image of John the Baptist that again, his whole person kind of consumes this message of preparing the way for Jesus. The camel's robe would be the poorest of the poor. That is the kind of clothing that they would wear. And so he, he relates himself to the poor. And again, kind of a, they're a call to repentance to the materialism of that age. The same idea, it talks about the leather belt, just kind of an a old leather belt that would have been tied around in comparison to the ornate, the over-the-top type of, of materialism and um, clothes that, so many would have been wearing at that time. Again, a call to repentance, a call to put off materialism, a call to care for the poor. Even his diet is so simple, it's not excessive. 
And all of this mirrors and images uh, Elijah the prophet. As Elijah would be calling the people to repentance, now John taking on the same type of, of life, the same type of lifestyle, calling the people to repentance, even so much that you have this imagery of him in the wilderness calling the people to repentance, much like you have God calling the people out of Egypt to follow him into the wilderness. And so this is our context. This is, is our man in the context of all kinds of evil and darkness. And now this man wholly set apart to God, strange and yet completely sold out to this mission of preparing the way for Jesus as just sort of that silhouette of him in the wilderness is a call to repentance. And you have this unique man at a unique time, uniquely gifted for this ministry of preparation. I want to make a, I'm going to go down a rabbit trail application here. God often puts us in unique situations in life that are unique to us, whether it's unique challenges, uh, difficult providence, um, a set of, of skills or gifting, different ways that God uniquely blesses us or uniquely gives us a difficult providence. I think the tendency is often to despise that uniqueness and desire what others have instead of embracing where the Lord has placed you and providentially what He has set you up to be able to accomplish ministry-wise. I want to make an application to the singles in this because my mind kept going there. I feel like being single is not totally unique. There's a lot of single people. But within church life, it can sometimes be somewhat unique in that a lot of ministry is geared towards a family. And so you have a lot of emphasis on parenting and on husband and wife and relationships and a lot of that sort of emphasis. And sometimes there isn't a lot of application made specifically towards singles. But I want to encourage singles to embrace the uniqueness that they have in their life right now being single. And I think there's a few different ways you guys can embrace this. And so uh, I hope you'll listen to this. Uh, uh, singles here in the church, and everyone can really apply this, but I'm thinking specifically with our singles. And one is that you don't replace the distractions of marriage with other distractions. Now, marriage is not a distraction. That sounds really negative. I don't mean that as like a totally negative thing. But if you're married and you have kids, you know that it takes a huge portion of your life and focus now. And I think there's a real gift in being single in that you are able to serve others without that distraction. But I think the tendency is to fill that void with new distractions, new hobbies, new whatever. You can place it in there. And so you don't have the wife or the husband or the kids, but you just come up with new distractions to take your time. I would just encourage you at a unique point in your life, when you have time and lack of distraction, don't fill up your life with new distractions to clutter your time, but take advantage of serving others. Secondly, I would say 
singles say yes even in the last minute. Someone wrote, marriage is the death of spontaneity. I'm sounding really negative on marriage. I love my wife. I love being married. I love my kids. But it's hard to be spontaneous once you're married. Those last minute, hey, I need help. Hey, can you help me pack my car? I'm I'm moving. Can you help? Some of those last minute calls for help, those last minute things that come up where the church needs people who can serve, who can help, who can come alongside. And I would encourage you as single people, there's more flexibility, there's more spontaneity. Say yes. Don't always be geared to say no. Say yes, even if it's the last minute. And then I, just the last one is that you, in your singleness, don't become focused on self. I know that's, that's a hard one. I think I was single until I was 29, so I had finished all my schooling, I had gone through some jobs, I was here in the ministry, so I understand some of these challenges. And, um, you know, you're forced out of focusing on yourself when you have husband, wife, kids, others like that. There can be a tendency in singleness that you become very much focused on yourself. Being single isn't an excuse to not serve others. All right, so that's my rabbit trail on singleness. But I think it's worth noting, when you look at John, you look at the uniqueness of his life, the uniqueness of his calling and ministry, you would embrace that in your own life. And for those who are single, there's unique opportunities that you have. Don't be so focused on self, clutter your life with other distractions, that you just wish instead of, you wish you weren't single instead of embracing where the Lord has you right now. And in the end, hope and trust in Christ. He'll be your treasure. All right, so the setting, the man, and now let's get to repentance, and we'll take a few moments here. The message of John. So we've seen the setting of John, we've seen the man, John, now we look at the message of John. That is, that you will repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Really, verse 3 encapsulates the whole ministry and life and message of John the Baptist. Verse 3 says, And he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book, the words of Isaiah, and he goes on there, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, there's a little bit of stuff to unpack here. First of all, what do we mean by repentance? I think if you look back at Luke chapter 1 and verses 16 and 17, the calling... And Gabriel announces John, he announces what his calling will be. It gives us an indication of what repentance is. Verse 16 and 17 of Luke 1 says, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Anyone catch the word in there that's repeated? that we'll use in our definition of repentance? To turn. Repentance, to turn away from and to turn to. To turn away from sin, to turn away from the things of this world, to turn away from reliance on self, and to turn to God. It's a turning of our life, a 
turning of our affections. It involves a recognition that what we are trusting in and treasuring is not life-giving and is far inferior to Christ, and then it is turning to Him. I think sometimes we can we miss the emphasis on repentance in our gospel. We hit hard on justification by faith, which we should, and, and we'll hit that. And we talk about the activity of God in our salvation and how we are dead and He makes us alive. And we, we hammer on that justification. You think if anyone did that, it was the Reformers, right? As they would hammer on justification by faith alone. I mean, that was the crying point of Martin Luther. But when you go back and you visit his 95 theses that he nailed there to the castle door in Wittenberg 500 years ago, 1517, nearly 500 years ago, and you look at the very first of those 95 theses, this is what it says, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. You see, he starts there with repentance. He is drawing attention to the vital reality of of repentance as part of the gospel message. Listen to the question and answer of the catechism. It gives us a great definition. It says, what is repentance? The answer, repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. It's understanding your sin, turning from it, and turning to God. A call to repentance is part of the gospel. But if we look a little closer here at Luke chapter 3, He calls it a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It can be a little confusing because it almost makes it feel like repentance is a work or a self-produced condition in order to be forgiven. Is repentance the work that we bring that earns us forgiveness? I know, just fall here with it. It's important we get this right. We know that's not the case Repentance, like faith, is a gift from God. If you just look at Luke's writing further on in Acts, if you want to jot down Acts 5.31, see repentance sovereignly given by God. Acts 11.18, we see that God granted the Gentiles repentance. Later, you'll see maybe the clearest picture of it. Paul will say in 2 Timothy Chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, again, of God graciously granting repentance. So repentance, like faith, is not produced by ourselves. And yet we are called to be attentive, to be serious, to be active in repenting. As the Lord would awaken our hearts and our minds, that we would be aware of sin and we would turn from it and turn to Christ. John is saying if you are completely comfortable in your sin, you are not in any way turning from your sin, 
then don't get comfortable in the thought of thinking that your sins are forgiven. Faith and repentance are a gift from God that accompany our salvation, accompany our conversion. So what is meant here then? Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I think the next section of our passage kind of helps clarify exactly what, um, what John is, is saying or what Luke is, is saying here. He's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 4 of Luke chapter 3. He says, As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What he's doing here is he's borrowing from... uh, tradition that would happen in ancient times, that in some of these kind of remote villages, remote areas, occasionally a dignitary or someone of importance would come and visit that village, come and visit that area. And so what they would do is basically kind of the idea of rolling out the red carpet for them. They would make sure, okay, they'd go a little bit outside the village and make sure everything was cleaned up and everything um, was ready. At some points, if it was very remote, maybe they would even build a bit of a path or a bit of a road or uh, dam up some water that would allow for an, an opening. And so they would make a path for this important person, for this dignitary, then to kind of come into the village. And this is their welcoming of it. And now the metaphor is taken, only it's heightened to this cosmic scale of now Jesus Christ is coming, more obviously more important than any dignitary. And as he is coming, they're saying now the mountains, they're flattening out and the valleys, they're filling up and those crooked paths they're taking and making a straight line. They are preparing a straight way for the Lord to come in this gigantic cosmic sense. And what John is doing now is saying, okay, here is how that highway is prepared for the Lord to come. It is prepared through repentance. Jesus Christ is coming, and He is coming to forgive your sins. He has come, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But what is going to be able to stand in the way and stop that? If you don't think you need a Savior, if you don't think you have sins that need forgiven, And he is calling the people to lay themselves low. The Messiah is coming, and you need to recognize and realize and turn away from your sin and turn to the Messiah who is coming. You need to realize you need a Savior, and you have no ability in yourself to rescue yourself and turn to the Savior. And so he's saying, repent. Repenting is what is making the way for the Messiah to come, making the way for the Lamb of God to come to take away the sins of the world. And so that's the metaphor that he's calling them to through this illustration. Our next thing to deal with, what is is the baptism of repentance? Why is it connected with, with baptism? John's baptism here is is unique. There, there's Old Testament baptisms. It's similar to that, but it's not the exact same. We'll see that it's a foreshadowing of the baptism of the Spirit. But John's baptism is a bit unique. A, a few things to look at specifically with John's baptism. First, 
along with all of John's life, this baptism was a ministry of preparation for the Messiah. This baptism is a ministry of preparation for Jesus. Secondly, and just bear with these words, it just sounds big, but it's a prophetic eschatological washing. That is, basically, it looks forward to the better, the greater, the ultimate baptism that will be offered us by the Spirit in Jesus Christ. So it points us forward. It, it points us looking forward. Luke will record the words of Paul later in Acts 19. As Paul's in Ephesus, in Acts 19, verses, starting in verse 3, he says, Paul speaking, he said, Into what then were you baptized? He asked this question. The people in Ephesus answer, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And on hearing this, the people were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there's a uniqueness in John's baptism. It's related to his announcement of the coming Messiah. It's related to calling, pointing people forward to the baptism that will be offered in Jesus Christ. We see, thirdly, his baptism was distinctly connected to repentance. It followed repentance. They came to them as a sign that they were repenting, preparing to hear from the Messiah, preparing for the coming of the Messiah. So it's distinctly connected to repentance. And then finally we see that this baptism was not repentance itself, but just a sign of it. In a sense, it didn't pardon from sin. It wasn't repentance itself. It was just a sign of it. We see that coming to light in verse 7. Back in Luke chapter 3 and verse 7, John says, as he begins his preaching, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance? So he goes hard after him. And at first, it might seem like, okay, are these just interested bystanders and he's just deciding to go off on them or what's going on? If you look in the context of Matthew, you can see that he paints a little different picture where it's more of the Pharisees and Sadducees and that sort of attitude that is coming out judging what is taking place here. But why does he attack them? Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I think what John is saying is you're not getting it. This baptism itself isn't repentance just the act of it. It's not pardoning you from anything. What they're doing is they're trying to flee wrath without leaving any of the sin that they hold so dear. They want the protection of the Messiah without giving up anything in repentance. Often like we operate, right? (laughs) We want to cling closely to sin but still get the benefits of our Savior. And so he's saying, you're not getting it at all. You still are holding on to your sin dearly. You don't really believe. Show me your fruits. I would see fruit of repentance. This baptism isn't a fruit of repentance. It's just a sign that you are prepared, that you realize you need a Savior. You need this one that is coming. So he tells them, okay, you're trying to flee from the wrath to come. 
But that's not the point. You need to turn from your sin and embrace the one who is coming. Embrace Christ. And then finally, the last point of our baptism, the baptism of repentance here, is we see that this baptism of repentance is for all. It's for everyone. If you look at the verse 6, it talks about repentance. In verse 6 it says, And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Undoubtedly, the people were connecting this baptism of John the Baptist with the Old Testament proselyte baptism. So in the Old Testament, you would never ask a Jew to be baptized. You would a Gentile. So when a Gentile is wanting to convert, there's three steps that they go to. First, they have to make a public confession. So before their friends, before their family, whoever, they're making a public confession. Secondly, then they have to go through the rite of circumcision, taking on that sign And then thirdly, they would have to experience a proselyte baptism because they would still be thought to be unclean. And so this was kind of a washing that would make them clean in this um, proselyte baptism and becoming uh, proselytizing, if you would. Becoming a proselyte there. And so it's not unusual for the Gentiles to be called this type of baptism. And so undoubtedly that's what the people are thinking of, okay, here's Gentiles coming, but John's message is radically different in that he's saying you all need this baptism. And that's what he goes after then in verse 8. He says, bear fruits in keeping with your repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham, raise up children for Abraham. So it's not your Jewishness, it's not your ethnicity, it's not your tradition, it's not what you are. That's not what I'm looking for, John says. I want to see the fruit of repentance. So now he's calling not just the Gentiles, but he's calling all to repent. The Lamb of God is coming to take away the sins of the world. How will you be prepared for this one? John says by repenting by turning from your sin, by acknowledging that you need a deliverer, you need a Savior, you need forgiveness. And then we'll see, John will send them going after Christ then, to turn from and to go after. So finally, in closing then, looked at repentance. What is the fruit of repentance then? If he's looking for the fruit of repentance, let's begin in verse 9. Just a couple observations. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In Scripture, the call to repent is always an immediate, urgent call. Repent, for the day of the Lord is at hand. There's never a, you know, when you get around to it, repent. There's an urgency and an immediacy always to this call to repent. The day of the Lord is at hand, the day that will bring deliverance and promise and hope to those who believe, but one that will bring judgment 
quick and sure to those who do not. And that's the illustration that's being painted here. It's not that, hey, there's you know, an axe over there in that shed, and I might go get it and start chopping down this tree. No, it, it has the idea of the tree's already, the notch has already been cut, everything is ready, and the definitive blow is getting ready to be struck. The call to repent is urgent. And again, the fruit of your repentance is not who you're related to and, and any of that. The fruit of your repentance, he'll still point forward to here in just a moment. So we see that it's an urgent call. And then he goes on and he gives these examples divinely inspired for us of these fruits of repentance, beginning in verse 10. The crowd asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you, author, than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages." I got to think this was a bit surprising. He, he's calling them to repent. He's calling, he wants to see fruits of repentance. And okay, we've done this baptism. Now, what's our next big thing? Like, do we get down on our hands and knees and start crawling? Do we start whipping our backs? What's our next step here in repentance? And the first thing he says is be generous and care for others. That's simple, but that's a fruit of repentance. You notice he doesn't say, you know, once you have three coats for each season and you find one you don't like, then give that one away. No, if you have two, give one. If you've got food, share it. A call to focus on the interests, the cares of others, to be generous to one another. First call of repentance is to immediately look outward, outside of yourself, the concerns, the cares of others. The second call there to the tax tax collector is he just calls them to honesty and integrity in their work. You know, that was a not a there was a lot of corruption in that job. wasn't a a highly um, not not a real Christian thought of job in that day. Often you'll see sinners described as the publicans and tax collectors. But you notice John doesn't say you need to quit your job. He just says do your job well, do it honestly, honestly and do it with integrity. That's simple fruit of repentance, but that is fruit of repentance. Then lastly, he calls them to justice and care for the soldiers what shall we do he said do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations but be content with your wages don't take advantage of others because of your position don't don't bully don't be trying to get rich off of someone else be content with what god provides you I don't know, I was struck, a bit surprised by these are the fruits of repentance that John talks about. 
real simple things, but we want to know how do we glorify God in our work? Fruits of repentance. Do your job well. Do it honestly. Do it with integrity. And be content. Don't be complaining all the time. Care about others. And not just when it's convenient. Because then you'll never care about others. It's never convenient to. But be, you know, bothered for the sake of someone else. Be inconvenienced for the sake of someone else. If you've got two jackets, share one. If you've got food, share it. <clears throat> a call to repentance. I think it's a difficult call sometimes because we fight the idea that it's becoming too man-centered. You know, we have a high view of God's sovereignty and a high view of the salvation that he brings. And we know that in regeneration, you are dead, wholly passive, and he is active in bringing you life. But when he calls you to faith and repentance, he calls you to seriousness, he calls you to action, he calls you to attentiveness. Scripture is quite clear, quite plain that if we find delight and joy in our sin and we are totally comfortable in the sin we know to be wrong, then you should find no comfort in the forgiveness of Christ. This isn't a call to perfection. This isn't a call that you'll ever arrive. You'll always be repentant because you'll always be sinning and you'll be messing up and the, the journey is always set before you. But are there fruits of repentance? Not something mysterious and, and out there, that, but simple fruits of repentance like, put, like John places before these folks. The call to repentance is to understand that you need a Savior. To see your sin and to grow in hatred for it. To see Christ to love him and go after him. Let the confrontational nature of a call to repentance weigh upon you. God is calling you to turn from your sin and turn to him. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll continue here with the Lord's table. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ which cleanses us from all sin and unrighteousness. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people of faith who love you. Lord, thank you for the gift of repentance. I pray that we will be attentive to it. Lord, that when we see the sin, the materialism, and the treasure that is creeping in and delighting our hearts more than Christ and his word, Lord, that we will learn to hate that sin and to love Christ, to turn from that sin and to turn to the things of the Lord. Lord, we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Like that. <clears throat> the worship team to